for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Okay, teaching text for today is Philippians 4, 1 through 3, and we'll read this together in one voice. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Seneca to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Everybody said? Okay, you can be seated. Well, today we're going to talk about relationship conflict in the church, a really fun topic. And you know you're making progress in Christian community, real Christian community, when you begin to experience real conflict with other people. Many people in churches never get to this place. Because the truth is, you don't really have friendships in a church that might produce conflict. You have acquaintanceships. You have people that you're, like you're, you're perhaps friendly with, but not close enough with, to actually bump into one another. This is really a tragedy. I remember my friend Chris King, whom some of you will know, who really like built New Life Ranch into lots of what it is today. There was a day when the summer staff that he had hired was just bickering with one another. And Chris was just sitting back and kind of laughing and smiling. And they're, Chris, why are you laughing? We're all, you know, fighting. It's like you're finally close enough to one another to tell each other the truth and get on each other's nerves. I think it's fantastic. Uh, conflict is, uh, is not fun. Uh, many of you would say you're not temperamentally wired to handle conflict. I think the majority of us would say it's something that I want to avoid. By temperament, that's certainly me. And I will tell you that in the four or so years of, you know, having launched and been leading this church, uh, navigating relational conflict has been by far the most difficult part of this uh, whole journey. Uh, my coach, who I talk with periodically, asked me at one point, like, how are things going? How would you describe how you, where you are in life right now? And I said, I am a full-time student in the school of conflict. I am going through conflict everywhere. And George Barnes said, leaders deal with conflict 100% of the time. Half the time you're creating it, and half the time you're cleaning it up. Which is not just, I think, about leadership. I think it's just about doing authentic community with groups of people is navigating all of the ways in which we can't get along with one another. And it just happens by virtue of proximity. You get a bunch of people spending time together. If they have a common goal, they have differences. If you know, may have varying expectations of what community is supposed to look like. You've got egos. You've got sin. And conflict just arises. And then you throw God and church into the middle of all of it and all the weight and the baggage that comes with that. And you have the makings of what could be a very sticky and sweaty situation. Now, in frustration, many people experience conflict, relational conflict in the church and just think, well, this church is done for. I'm going to go find another church. And they're surprised that conflict has preceded them there. 
Or sometimes people project their conflict experience in one church onto all churches, and they just take themselves out of the conversation altogether, making faith a private thing, which is very unfortunate because the limbs that you sever rarely heal. The relationships that you completely cut off by walking away from them, they rarely heal, and yet the consequences of those severances go with you. It denies us a chance to heal and to grow and even to grow in intimacy with other people when instead of working through the conflict, we sever that relationship. We, We withhold from ourselves the opportunity to get better. And it's helpful, though difficult, to accept that conflict is a natural part of life. Conflict is something that you can get better at navigating. Uh, I'm trying really hard to get better at navigating conflict right now. It's an inevitable part of life. It's something that you can get better at. And conflict can actually be a tool that leads to greater intimacy in Christian community. Today, I want to talk briefly from the text about three community killers, three things that kill or hinder authentic Christian community. I could talk about this for a really long time. I told Emily this morning, I could probably talk for an hour and a half. Today, I have three big points I want to take on, but before I get there, I want to make two quick observations about this very short text that we uh, looked at together. The first, which is, you know, like kind of hiding in plain sight, but perhaps we took for granted, is Euodia and Seneca are listed on equal levels as co-workers with Paul and Epaphroditus, who is the unnamed beloved here, and Clement. Does that stand out to you in any way? Euodia and Seneca are named as, as equals, as partners. So what it says, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, there are certainly tricky passages in the New Testament to read about women in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2 is one of them, 1 Timothy 2, 15. It's very problematic for lots of people trying to understand, can women lead in the church? And yet, we also have to make sense of passages like this where Paul is not quick to qualify. Now, to be clear, the women didn't say anything. They were behind me. He didn't offer any kind of, of conditional clause like that. These women served at my side. We look again at Romans chapter 16 and all the many women who are listed, even as apostles, women like Junia. Right here and there, Paul just, in a relaxed kind of way, talks about these women as being on equal level leadership in the church. And I just think that's really cool. If you have questions about where I am on that, I preached a sermon uh, called Remember the Titaness about Phoebe, a woman in the New Testament. I just think that's really cool. Paul doesn't tiptoe around women's leadership here. The second thing that I think is really fascinating about this scripture is that conflict was regarded as a chief environment to practice being a Christian. Uh, Paul said, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Seneca to be of the same mind in the Lord. We don't know the nature of their conflict, but it was big enough that it made it all the way to Paul and lockdown. The conflict was a big enough deal that, that like someone wrote a letter to tell Paul about it, and Paul intervened, and he said, think about this conflict as a Christian. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Conflict, then, for us is, is not ought to be something to run from, but something to work through as actually a key part of our discipleship, which is, again, why severing relationships or walking away from conflict is rarely successful and rarely leads to our healing. God wants to leverage it like all parts of our life for us to grow in Christ. Now, I could, make, I could have made a list of like 10 community killers, things that we could talk through. I could spend a good number of minutes on ghosting. You know what ghosting is? Okay, don't do that to people. 
I will say in fairness, it's getting much easier to ghost accidentally because there are so many ways that people can contact you. Like, oh my gosh, I'm just sorry. I got 10 different messages on 10 different platforms, but I'm not going to talk about ghosting today. I could also talk about this very important topic for people who are typically under the age of 45, which is trying to resolve conflict through text messaging when you should be talking in person. That's a no-no. That's a community killer. Text can't bear the weight of all of that conflict. I'm going to talk about three other community killers that show up in our passage today. And the first one is called triangulation. Triangulation. Okay, this is a really fun one. In fact, I'm going to get some help here. Uh, Harold and Thomas and Russ, will you guys help me real quick? I did not ask them ahead of time, and I will not ask you ahead of time when I call on you. So will you guys come and stand right here for me? So um, we're going to put Harold on this side and Russ in the middle. So um, Harold and Thomas are just not getting along, especially since Thomas and Lizzie moved back to town. Like, like tensions are running hot. Like father and son right now are just like, I mean, as you could tell, these are guys who just want to take it out on each other. But rather than talking with each other, they've elected Russ to be like the, the appointed peacemaker. And so Thomas says, my dad is just, like, he's just going crazy. Like, he's just a mess. You wouldn't believe it. He, of course, he never says, says this to dad, especially not at family gatherings or going out to a restaurant where dad might pay. Like, he's definitely, <laughs> definitely doesn't do that then. He's going to take all of his issues to Russ, and Russ is going to bear that. And similarly, you know, Harold, Harold's got all these grievances against his son, Thomas. I mean, what a punk, Thomas Briggs right here. But rather than going to Thomas, uh, Harold, of course, goes to Russ, who gladly bears the burden. Now, here's what happens. This is called triangulation. And someone is caught in the middle of this triangle, and that's Russ. Now, Russ is a fantastic guy, and Russ could be thinking, I'm being helpful. I'm being a mediator. I'm being a peacemaker. But what actually happens when you have a conflict between two people and you insert a third person, the conflict gets even more complicated. And that's the very definition of triangulation, a conversation uh, between three people that should only be between two people. And you know what actually happens? Who bears the greatest stress? It's the person in the middle of the triangle, Russ Arnold right here. He's bearing the stress of this relationship. And so what must be done is for Russ to de-triangle. So Russ is going to step back and say, Thomas, he's your father for crying out loud. You need to talk to him. Harold, he's your son for crying out loud. You need to talk to him. And Russ takes himself out of the picture, and then they resolve everything. <laughs> okay, you guys can sit down. Would you give them a round of applause? What's happening in a triangulated situation is the responsibility shifts away from the people who should be bearing it toward an, a kind of undeserving victim. Sometimes we bring other people into our conflict out of, out of cowardice or lack of skills. Like, we, we need help. It's appropriate to get help. But sometimes we bring people into the middle of our conflict what we've really done is just shifted the burden of responsibility away from us who should bear it onto this hapless victim. And, and being triangulated, caught between two parties who should be talking to each other but are not, is the very definition of stress. 
And you can be triangulating with another person. You can also be triangulating with an issue. And so there's Bob, there's Bob's drinking, and there's Sally. You know, Sally is overcompensating for Bob's drinking, and she's taking on the responsibility that's not hers to bear. And by having the responsibility shifted away from him, he doesn't have to deal with the consequences. So Sally needs to wisely detriangle herself by passing the responsibility back to where it belongs. We like to go to third parties because they help to maintain a, a kind of homeostasis. Things haven't blown up yet when we're dealing with this, this triangulated person, the person who's going in the middle. We like that kind of homeostasis, but it's a false harmony. It's a false harmony, and it's wearing that person out. So what do we do when, we're, when we find ourselves triangulating? Well, the, the New Testament invites us to practice being direct. Uh, having the conversation, having the, taking the third person out of the conversation, and having the one-on-one that most needs to happen. Now, I find Paul's wording in, in this text to be very deliberate. Notice what he said. He said, I plead with Euodia. That's a one-on-one conversation. And I plead with Seneca. Y'all got to work it out. He has not assumed the burden of responsibility that he's going to be the fixer. And he has not pulled himself into the middle of a triangle. He's addressed individuals. Euodia, do your part. I'm encouraging you. Seneca, do your part. I'm encouraging you. Now, to do this, to detriangle oneself, to refuse to get caught in the middle of a triangulated relational strategy, uh, requires some real gumption and courage. You know, it's, it's kind of nice. It can be a bit of an ego boost to be the person in the middle of a triangle because you feel like you're doing the Christian thing. You can feel like you're mediating or you're peacemaking and you kind of baptize it, but what you're really doing at times is kind of this codependent, maintaining homeostasis because you really don't want to see other people have to face the consequences of their actions. You don't really want to see them have to bear the responsibility of fixing this situation. To effectively detriangle oneself, to place responsibility where it really belongs, requires us to increase our pain threshold, and it's, but it's the pain of others. Being willing to watch them assume the responsibility that was always theirs. Oh, it's so hard. The second thing that it requires you to do is to encourage them to grow. As long as I am the one holding things together, other people don't have to increase in responsibility. But if I detriangle myself and I hand responsibility, ultimate responsibility, back where it belongs, it requires them to grow. Now, does that mean we're completely, uh, you know, unable to help when there's conflict? We are able to help, but it's primarily pointing other people to have the conversations with whom they need the people they need to talk to. Harold needs to talk to his son. Thomas needs to talk to his father. And I do hope you guys can work it out. Um, what would be great if there really were a very real conflict you were working through right now? And he's like, did the Lord tell him that? He did not tell me that. <laughs> Triangulation, it, it, it complicates things. As followers of Jesus, what do we do? We practice directness. It's awkward, it requires vulnerability, it's going to be, be strengthened by some of the other skills and issues that we talk about today, but when we have an issue, 
we go directly to the person, not to a third party. Why? Because triangles multiply stress. Okay, that's the first community killer I want to talk about. The second, if you wanted to rapidly multiply mistrust in a community, if you wanted to make people incredibly suspicious of one another and raise like the overall anxiety in a group, there's one thing that you could do that would really help, and it's to keep secrets in community. It's to practice secrecy. Now, uh, even more threatening than the content of a secret is the fact that it feels like it needs to exist in a community. Because the presence of a secret suggests there's information that we can't trust one another with. And in many ways, like a church operates a lot like a family. I have a family. Our church is comprised of families. And as a whole, we behave like a family. And so secrets have this insidious nature, this way of promoting mistrust even among people who love each other. I think that even things like, like um, surprise parties, and I'm not even joking. I'm really being serious. I think even things like surprise parties, that, which can go on for too long, can sow seeds of mistrust and insecurity in relationships. So if you're going to do a surprise party, do a really, 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 really good job. Otherwise, avoid secrets because secrets are insidious. Secrets suggest there's something that we can't trust each other with. And especially in a relational context like a family or a church where we are striving to trust one another, secrecy undermines that. In a context where we should be processing the hard stuff of life together, secrets divide and they heighten anxiety. Now, secrecy is different than privacy. Privacy is appropriate. I'm so glad that you all didn't come to church naked today. It's good that you keep that private. You know, there are things that we would not do an open mic night about and, and everyone would share everything and in every context. Privacy is keeping to oneself things that are, are reasonable to do so or things that are appropriate to conceal. But secrecy is keeping hidden those things that should be open, but they're instead hidden. Uh, the antidote to secrecy is openness. The antidote to secrecy is openness. It didn't strike you, it struck me, that Paul actually named the conflict between these women in the letter to the entire church. And not only to all of the Philippian Christians, but he named it in a letter, like we read it 2,000 years later. Now, he didn't go into all the like, juicy details of that conflict, but he named, there is an issue between these two women who are in our church, and I'm telling you, and I'm telling you, y'all need to work it out. The way that we combat secrecy is through openness. Paul regarded this conflict between Euodia and Seneca as an all-church affair, he wasn't going to let the, the, the secrecy of the conflict or the nature of their conflict divide the church and let people pick sides. Well, have you heard Seneca's side of it? Well, I'm really on, you know, Euodia's side of the whole thing. He's not going to let that happen. So he disarms the power of the conflict uh, by bringing it out into the open. We, we undo the power of secrecy through openness, which is why confession of our sins is such a big deal in the New Testament. The stuff that we say aloud, that we reveal, like it, it liberates us. Sin thrives in secrecy. If, but, but like as, you, as soon as you begin to name it to other people, that begins to be broken. 
I remember a period of my life I've shared about it a couple of times where I was just incredibly depressed and honestly grief and exhaustion caught up with me and I had isolated myself and in secrecy had let this thing snowball and I was like I was a mess and there was something about Emily pushing me to share it with other people with with close friends that immediately lessened the power of that secret James, the brother of Jesus, says this is what we do with sin to disarm it. We confess our sins to each other, and we pray for each other so that we might be healed. James 5.16, we undo the power of secrecy by practicing openness. Confession is a big deal. And I think it's worth noting that if you read the New Testament, we, we understand that in the age to come, all of our secrets are going to be revealed. Both for good and for bad. Jesus talks about having a rich secret life in Matthews uh, 6 and 7. The good stuff that's hidden is going to be revealed, but everything hiding under, you know, in, in the shadows is going to be revealed and in the age to come. There will be no secrets. And there are currently no secrets from God. The Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give in account. There are no secrets with God, and yet even with Him, we're invited to practice openness. And in Christian community, we undo the power of secrecy by practicing openness, by striving for openness. And the last community killer that I want to talk about today, uh, ironically, you're going to think that I'm joking, but it's seriousness. Seriousness. Being in conflict with someone is a little bit like uh, pulling your car into the garage. In the garage, there are toxic fumes being like spat out. Now, as long as the garage door is open and there's an opportunity for those fumes to escape, like you're probably not going to die. You start to worry, though, when the garage door shuts and the car is still running. And the garage door shutting is like seriousness in a relationship. It's the seriousness that's going to kill you. The fumes are a problem, but it's that they have no chance to escape. It's the anxiety. It's the life or death nature of every conflict where you just feel like the room is full of fumes, and if anyone lights even a match, the smallest offense, things are going to explode. What do you need to do when you're in the garage with the car running and the garage door closed? Well, first thing you need to do is you need to open up the garage. Then the fumes have somewhere to go. There's an opportunity to deal with the conflict. How do you deal with conflict in relationships? Well, first of all, you need to address seriousness, which compounds the danger of the conflict itself. How do you do that? How do you open the garage? Well, uh, the opposite of seriousness is not being jokey. I'm not suggesting you just have a couple good knock-knock jokes up your sleeve, and that will really help navigate this very serious, pervasive, you know, conflict you've had with your spouse over a period of years. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting being flippant, which, is, which says, like, this conflict isn't really that big of a deal. Sometimes it really is that big of a deal, and by being flippant about it, you're making it much worse. I'm certainly not advocating for being sarcastic. In the middle of conflict, do not do that. Sarcasm is a joke, but with this kind of biting edge that just makes things a little bit worse. So what do you do? How do you practice the opposite of, of seriousness? Well, the opposite of seriousness is playfulness. And it's having, this is, this, I've been, it's been five years of trying to get my head around this. The opposite of seriousness is having this inner 
lightness of being. It's, it's having this sense of playfulness, and it can be expressed in one's tone and word choice and body language, but like it's about the overall core temperature in one's like being in their psyche. If like, you know, how most people operate, it's like the room is full of fumes. The person who's playful is a person who's actively trying to open up the door in all of their relationships so that everything is not life or death. There's a great story about this synagogue. And it was a high holy day, and so everyone was supposed to be on their best behavior. And, you know, there's this kid in synagogue school who had, uh, like, decided to be a little ornery on a given, that given day for Shabbat. And he goes to the whiteboard in his, you know, synagogue school class, and he writes out a four-letter word for excrement that's a little bit naughty that you wouldn't say. You would get in trouble for saying it in English. And he wrote it out phonetically on the board in Hebrew. So his synagogue, you know, teacher is just outraged on this high holy day. This little punk of a kid writes a bad word in Hebrew on the whiteboard. And so the teacher goes to the rabbi and instructs the rabbi, here's what's going on. You need to bring down the hammer on this kid. And the rabbi comes in really serious and he notices that when the kid wrote the like naughty four-letter word for excrement in Hebrew, that he actually misspelled it. And he goes to the kid and he says, I am so disappointed in you. That is not how you spell the word. And the rabbi writes out the word himself and gets it correct phonetically. says, I want you to write this a hundred times on the board to make sure you get it right. And the rabbi's own inner lightness of being just lessens the threat level. The, ra- the, the, the teacher goes to the rabbi, assuming that we're about here, and the rabbi just decides, no, 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 we're not going to do that on this day. This is going to be fine, and diffuses it through humor, and a humor that, uh, that has no victim. There's an inner lightness of being. The seriousness of our response in many situations often reveals our assessment of the threat level. And oftentimes when we're internally heightened, when we're freaking out on the inside, we feel like everything is life or death, but not everything is life or death. And if a person can practice the mindfulness and in conversation with God, do the things that open up the garage door so that we're not so easily threatened and not so easily offended, our own lightness of being helps de-escalate the conflict without You know, a kid goes to a parent, they're going to confess something that they did that was wrong, and they're sure that mom and dad are going to freak out. And when mom and dad don't freak out, but they handle it lightly, taking the issue seriously, but not, not like life or death seriously, when they, mom or dad have been practicing their own inner lightness of being, and the kid doesn't get scolded for saying the thing that they were afraid to say, does it increase or decrease the likelihood that that kid is going to share more with mom and dad in the future? It increases it. Mom and dad have focused on their own playfulness, combated their own seriousness so that they can deal with the situation in the absence of the garage door being shut and filling things up with fumes. Now, what this requires for each of us to do is to manage our own anxious responses. What we most want to change is the situation. What we most want to change is everyone else's behavior, but this puts the responsibility back on us to manage our own reactivity to their reactivity. 
We manage our own anxious response. We de-escalate within so that we can usefully de-escalate without. I actually think this is what Paul was doing. You look at the whole letter, and then you get to, verse, to chapter 4, and Paul is just effusive with love for these people. Now, now hear it with this kind of tone. My brothers and sisters, my family, hear him putting like emoticons in it if you were texting it. Like, you're my people. My people that I love, that I long for. You guys are like the jewels in my crown. I'm just crazy about you all. So stand firm in the Lord in this conflict that we've got going on with Euodia and Seneca. Let's deal with it. You don't get the sense that Paul was like, okay, guys, I've been, I've been working up to this point, and I need to talk to you about something that is very serious. I'm very concerned. I think there's an existential threat in the church right now. Euodia, I understand what you've done. Seneca, you know what you've done. He doesn't do that. He's got this lightness of being, like my people that I love. I'm so proud of you that you're the jewels in my crown. Let's stand firm in Christ together. And this conflict that we've got, he's light, he's loving, he's very connected, not disconnected as we tend to be and to do and we're going through conflict. I am no electrician, and some of you will utterly criticize what I'm about to say, but what I understand is that when it comes to working with electrical current, you know, you ever hear about the transformer blowing up in your neighborhood during a storm or things like that? A transformer is a really useful piece of equipment because a signal comes in at a certain voltage, and then the transformer helps to send it out at a different voltage. And so you can have what's called a step-up transformer, where let's say the voltage comes in at 100 volts, but it goes through this step-up transformer, and it goes out at 500 volts, much more intense. But you can also have step-down transformers, where the, the voltage comes in at 1,000 volts, but it goes out at 250. When we manage our own inner anxiety... When we do our part in conversation with the Lord to lower the temperature within, to open up our own garage door, we are in our relational networks like a step-down transformer where the intensity comes in at about 11 and we're putting it out at about a 3. We can deal with this. Like, okay, we're, we're cool, we're calm, we're breathing, we're step-down transformers. I'm inspired by how Paul practiced all these things in community. Where there could have been a temptation to triangulate, he was direct. I plead with Euodia. I plead with Seneca. Y'all got to go talk and figure this out. This is a big deal. It affects the whole church. Where things might be inclined to be secretive, like, okay, we don't want to disrupt unity, and so we're going to keep this a totally secret conversation that nobody knows about. He brings it out into the open. And where things could be very serious and escalate, Paul keeps it light and relationally connected. He de-escalates. And I love his instruction in Romans. Look, if it's possible, and it's not always possible in navigating every conflict, if it's possible, and as far as it depends on you, meaning don't put the burden of responsibility on other people, take care of yourself, do what you are meant to do. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. And I want to remind you that in the context of Philippians, which we've been studying for some weeks now, that this message of how we deal with conflict in the church comes on the heels of his other words. We said in Philippians 2, if Jesus means anything to you, have his mindset toward other people. Remember that we live in an environment of mercy predicated on the faithfulness of Jesus who is pulling for us. 
So we talked about last week, he said, strive for maturity by forgetting what's behind and striving for what's ahead. And now do all you can to work out conflict, especially with those, it ends in verse 3, whose names are written in the book of life. Saying, look, we are going to live together into eternity future. We may as well figure out how to get along now. As I wrap up, I think of, of two conflicts in the life of Jesus. Happened at the same time. People responded very differently. I think of Peter and I think of Judas. Peter obviously denies Jesus. They make eye contact and the rooster crows. Three times he denies him. And he and Jesus work through reconciliation. I think of Judas, on the other hand, who removed himself from the community and didn't have the opportunity to have a redemption story. And, you know, it's, it's, it's poignant to tell the story of Peter. You think if Peter, who's you know, one of Jesus' best friends, denied him and betrayed him, and he can be restored, then maybe there's hope for all of us. Well, how much more Judas? What kind of story of transformation and redemption were we all kept from because Judas removed himself from the conversation? In what ways is the Lord inviting you to lean into the uncomfortable and direct and open conversations? In what ways might Jesus be inviting you to practice that inner lightness of being and invite him to like oxygenate your heart, let those toxic fumes find some place to escape? Conflict is one of the most difficult things that we're ever going to deal with, and yet it's one of the principal environments that God has designed and permitted for our growth. How's he inviting you to respond? Uh, let's pray together. And if you're serving communion, would you please come? Lord Jesus, we just, we acknowledge that uh, we lack skills and we lack courage in dealing with conflict. Sometimes it's difficult enough for us to be direct with ourselves about our own flaws and failures, and uh, sometimes it's way easier to be direct with others. I pray that you'd help us to have grace-filled eyes, that you give us the courage to look one another in the face and work through the awkwardness of, I hurt you you hurt me, we misunderstood each other, how do we make things right? Help us to practice the courage to be open with ourselves and with our story, to have also the tact to know how and when and at what rate to do that. And help us, Lord Jesus, most of all in our world that is so reactive where everything invites outrage, that you'd help us to be people who live lightly and gently and calmly in the middle of all things. As we receive Holy Communion today, uh, Lord Jesus, would you just make us into uh, agents of reconciliation, knowing that we are loved by you, that we are living in an atmosphere of mercy. Help us to extend mercy to other people. Whoever I'm speaking to today, take a step today to mend things. God will be with you. He's pulling for you. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.